We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey, this is Megan Rapino, and I'm Sue Bird. We've decided to turn our crazy IG live show into a podcast for your listening pleasure. Enjoy the show. A Touch More. New episodes of A Touch More drop Tuesday only on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, joined by my co-host Nick Pilato. Today we're going to be breaking down new defensive coordinator Patrick Graham's defensive system. Now, versus someone like Jason Garrett on the offensive side of the ball, where we feel like there's still a lot of pieces to put together in the puzzle, it feels less so with Graham, especially considering he coordinated a defense recently, last season, and especially considering that he came from that Patriots system. And we believe there's going to be a lot of those Patriots way concepts that we'll see from Graham in 2020 and beyond, hopefully, if he can stay with the team, based on how they've selected players in the draft and free agency, and it's aligned kind of with those expectations. So before we dive into that, and we're going to dive deep, 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 deep on Patrick Graham's defense, I wanted to get a quick update from Nick about quarantine life, and then obviously touch on a little bit of the Giants' news. Uh, they've been in uh, one player specifically has been in the news lately. I'm uh, I'm doing well, Dan. That's that 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 one player was kind of a shocker that came out of left field. But um, quarantine life, man, just the weather's getting nicer, so I'm trying to go on as many runs as I can. Try to keep the old knees healthy, even though I'm not old in age. I feel very old. I'm sure you can probably sympathize with that. I know you're a big hiker, bro. How was your hike today? Yeah, I did a little seven miler today, which was nice. 
just got to take advantage of the good weather and the time off from work. Uh, get outside. Vitamin D is super important. Obviously, be safe. Keep your six feet from every single person. Social distancing, all that is important. But maybe equally as important, especially for your immune system, is getting vitamin D. If you can do it, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, you know, getting some sun is not the only way, but for sure, not a bad idea whatsoever to do it and also get some exercise at the same time. So that's uh, that's uh, exercise corner here on the Big Blue Panther podcast. But let's talk about the news. Uh, you know, a little bit shocking to some degree or to a large degree. Giants second year cornerback, 2019 first round pick DeAndre Baker expected to start in 2020. All expectations were that he would start. We'll see what happens now because he's been accused of armed robbery. Uh, I want to make it clear he's been accused of this. There is no, you know, we have to let this play out. There is a due process that needs to take place. I don't even think there's a zero. I think there's a chance that he could be playing week one based on past history with these cases. Um, sometimes all the facts are that appear straight don't end up being the case uh, after it goes through the lawyers and the court process. Um, we'll see what happens there. There's obviously a good chance as well that he, maybe he is guilty of what he's accused of. And that comes with serious, you know, a serious sentence that would undoubtedly uh, remove him from the 2020 season and likely at that point the Giants would release him. Um, I would ask Nick, what, what, I guess what's your initial reaction to this news? It was really shocking initially. It was a him and Quentin Dunbar. You're like, wait, what What the heck is going on here? Armed robbery? And when you read the affidavit and everything, and it seems... uh it, it was very alarming and it's it's strange man like I remember DeAndre Baker coming out of Georgia and I remember hearing a quote-unquote character concerns but he never had anything prior when it came to arrests it was all work ethic issues and and things along those lines which have kind of come out we've seen some uh, Giants players from last year come out and say that they were kind of fed up with DeAndre Baker's work habits and everything like that but this kind of thing is is a totally different animal and it, it was just uh, I was pretty shocked by it to say the least but again like you said, you have to have due process. You have to let this play out and kind of see how it all materializes. And uh, it's kind of hard for you and I to really give a honest opinion because we don't know what the facts are. Yeah, we don't know the facts, Nick. But for me, I, I do want to make this point, Nick. For me, at least, I'm almost more concerned when I hear the concerns for a player are related to his work ethic and his men and his ability to process mentally rather than somebody with a history of something criminal like this. I don't want to make the comparison between the two, but I also don't think just because the two things can't be compared, like I don't, I agree. You cannot have predicted Gettleman or the area scouts who, in my opinion, are way more responsible for this pick, uh, for a potential of this pick backfiring and, uh, you know, evaluating the character of a player than any general manager ever will be. But I don't want to say that they could have predicted this coming. But I also think it's fair to say that maybe they didn't do a good enough job, a strong enough job getting to know this player's background and his character. If this guy is struggling with the process, with processing mental from the mental side and the work ethic at Georgia. And from everything, you know, you read, you read before during the pre-draft process, it was that the coaches struggled to keep him motivated, struggled to keep him, uh, you know, interested in practice and, and, you know, aggressive at practice and things of that nature. And that to me is more concerning. And I understand why the giants felt like, okay, listen, this is a cornerback who we watch on tape and he is in phase and coverage the entire time in the SEC. He has X amount of career starts in the SEC. He shut down the best of the best in the best conference in college football with just elite cover. He's elite in, man, in, in, in these coverage situations on, on the boundary. And they look at it and they say, okay, wow, his 40 time, Nick, it disappointed. He was expected to run a faster 40. He did not run a faster 40. 
and a prospect who was expected to go before all of that process, the 40 time, the pre-draft interviews that did not go well, the reports that surfaced about you know his work ethic issues at Georgia. Before all of that, he was a top 10, top 15 prospect just on tape. And he dropped and he dropped and he dropped. And the Giants looked at it like, how important is it, Nick, to get that boundary lockdown cornerback? So they made the move. They traded up three, uh, two draft picks plus their second round draft. So three total draft picks to select DeAndre Baker, the back end of the first round. Make sure they lock in that fifth-year rookie deal, Nick. But guess what? <laughs> now you take the risk. You take the risk that a player won't adapt immediately, that your coaching and that your system, that your culture that you're trying to build, but it's still an obvious work in progress. I think we can both agree on that is not quite there yet and not quite ready to take in a player like that. I mean, who was his mentor last year? Janoris Jenkins? Is that who he's learning from? Do you want to learn from a player who was released from the Giants because he called someone, used the R word to refer to a fan on Twitter during a practice, like potentially during a practice? Like, that's not a mentor. And everyone else in that cornerback room, Nick, were just as young as him and just as impressionable as him. So I think what happened, Nick, and only criticism that I do have is when you make that decision to trade all those picks up, you are taking a big risk. You're going from a home run hit there. There's a reason he wasn't selected in the top 10 and top 15, and it's not just the 40 times. So you're taking that swing. You're swinging for a home run, Nick. And what happens when you swing for a home run sometimes? Sometimes you strike out. If DeAndre Baker plays one season with the Giants, a season where he didn't pick up James Betcher's system at all, then it's, a, then it's a strikeout. It's a miss. And you cannot, in my opinion, afford to make miss, to, to, to swing and miss in the first round of the NFL draft. In my personal opinion, my philosophy for that is that you should be, especially when you get deeper into the first round, Nick, you know, fifth, from pick 15 on, you should be swinging for a double and not a home run. And that would be my major criticism right now surrounding the pick, even if this didn't happen, Nick. But again, he's missing voluntary Zoom meetings and voluntary workouts to start this offseason. According to Dan Dugan from The Athletic, he you know wasn't there for the start of voluntary OTAs even before this report suited. So for me, these red flags are less to do with the criminal side of it and more to do with the work ethic side of it. I think they're uh, conflated together, like the, the 40 time and the work ethic. He did not run a good 40 time because he didn't train for the combine because his work ethic is shit, essentially. And those were the criticisms coming out of Georgia. But I think, like you said, you take the risks. Dave Gettleman took the risk on, hey, I value this guy's ability to play press man, something that they wanted to do, something that Patrick Graham's going to want to do, too. I value his ability to play press man. He has long enough arms to do so. Let's take this risk, trade these other picks and try to land our cornerback of the future. And I'm sure that they vetted him and knew about these quote unquote character concerns that are kind of playing out right now. Again, let's let due process do its thing, but they felt like they could bring him into the giants culture and have him, I guess, adapt. The problem was, like you said, he was learning from guys like Janoris Jenkins. There wasn't really a core cornerback that like you would look at, and say, this is the guy who's going to set the example for you. And when it comes to his work ethic issues, I mean, sometimes you got to look in the mirror. And DeAndre Baker just wasn't doing that last year by all reports that have been coming out. It's definitely disappointing. And it was a risk to trade up for a player with these kind of red flags. But if it all worked out, it would have been fine. But this kid didn't seem to get his head on straight all last season. And now we have this come up. Let's see how it plays out, like you say. But it's, uh, it's not a good look, obviously. Yeah, and if there's one thing I feel like I've learned, Nick, from watching the Last Dance documentary about Michael Jordan and those final Bulls years and really his whole career, it's how important the competitive gene trait is, how important the work ethic is to every single one of these athletes. It's not just for the best guys like Jordan of their sport. 
every single person who gets to the NFL level, even to just suit up on a 53-man roster, had to go overcome so much just to get there. There's so few players who try to play football who make it. And then to become a starter, to become maybe potentially, you know, his ceiling, which would be a boundary, lockdown, man coverage, cornerback, it's not going to happen on talent alone. It's not, not going to happen on talent alone for literally anyone and you know if that if uh, if some if a prospect doesn't understand that or can't demonstrate signs of making the changes to move in that direction to me it's just not worth the risk sometimes talent can overcome and you know people can bring all these examples like they have to my mentions like people like Randy Moss have you ever read about how Randy Moss studied the position and what Randy Moss did to learn the intricacies about route running and coverages Randy Moss may have you know smoked weed in college like who gives a crap about that? It was like a time where people actually cared and thought smoking, you know, him using marijuana was some kind of impediment for the rest of his career. But but to me, it's not you cannot compare those two things again. One is you know, different than the other. And work ethic to me has to be there. And when it's not there, it's troubling. And I hope he can overcome this. I hope that he gets out of this. This is a life lesson to him. I hope he's innocent, I should say, and that this is a life lesson to him and he gets on the straight and narrow because he has the talent. We'll talk about that today. We're not going to completely cut him out of this Patrick Graham podcast because A, he might be there, and B, his skill set is something that the Giants, A, could have had a good fit uh, first Graham system, and B, you know, could have taken that defense to the next level. If he, you know, displayed some of the traits and took it to the next level that we saw during his rookie season, me and you, Nick, there was a chance he could have the biggest leap. I, I wrote about him as a breakout candidate, one of three players I would put as the top three likeliest to break out. I wrote about that two weeks ago, Nick, and I, and I remain, you know, that remains the same for me, though I'm reconsidering it because maybe I feel like I'm not putting enough Honus into how important the work ethic aspect is and how much he wants to be that first round pick cornerback boundary lockdown man coverage guy. And maybe I'm not putting enough weight into that. I don't know, Nick, but as, as we'll move forward, we'll obviously touch on Baker and everything like that. But is there anything else you wanted to say about the situation right now or kind of just, you know, let the situation play out and we'll see what happens. Yeah, I think we just got to let this situation play out. Let the facts come to light and then obviously the giants will react accordingly i mean it's despicable if it is true but uh, due process man we gotta gotta allow due process to do due process things yeah i don't even despicable is one word i don't even know the word i would use i would one word is just just pure ignorance ignorance i don't know I, it's just something to do like that just you know your head's just not right on right if that's if that if he actually if those you know if any of these guys actually are guilty of this it's a crazy, it's a crazy decision. I can't understand how their minds moved in that direction. Is all I'll say. I guess part of it has to do with just feeling superior um, and above the law, maybe to some extent. I don't want to speculate too much on this, though, to be honest, because that is not. I have no interest in that at all. We're here to, of course, man. And and it's interesting though. One other thing on DeAndre Baker, it's. Like you and I have talked about, especially in this draft, how Gettleman was targeting those culture guys, those team captains, all those kind of players. And even going back to last year and the year prior, Gettleman's first draft, he was going after, you know, seniors, guys who had a ton of experience starting. And with the like, if there was one player that like had the red flags coming out of school that Gettleman kind of took a risk on it. It was DeAndre Baker, right? Like I'm trying to think of all the other guys that he's brought into the Giants. They were all like high character guys for the most part. And uh, it's just, um, it's interesting that the one guy seems to kind of put his neck on out on the line for, especially, but trading back up into the first round and this ends up coming to light. And again, we'll see how it all plays out, but that's a uh, kind of a wild. And that is an, an excellent point, Nick, because it really is interesting how big of an outlier the DeAndre Baker pick is from everything else we've seen from Gettleman since he took over the job. It's just, 
from a character standpoint, he's a total outlier pick. And, you know, I think what happened is, and, you know, Paul Schwartz today from the, from the post, the guy who really, in my opinion, is one of the more, most tapped in beat writers. I think Schwartz, you know, Vacchiano, these guys who have been on the beat for, for a long time, uh, have, have some sources within the building. And what he said is that when the Baker pick came to be, came about, there was a big argument in the Giants room. Some were really for it. Some were really against it. But in my opinion, I'm putting the, if I'm asked to put the blame here, it's on that area scout who, by the way, was recently the, the Giants have gotten rid of their SEC scout. But it's on that area scout for not doing enough homework and not digging enough into DeAndre Baker. Because in my opinion, from what I know, Nick, just from what I know, and again, this is a bit speculative, but it's based on a decent amount of context. From what I know, this is a guy who struggled with work ethic concerns at Georgia, struggled to have any interest in practice at Georgia, you know, struggled to grasp the mental side of things with the Giants during his first season, struggled to care about the mental side of things with Giants during his first year. Like you said, there's been some whispers of teammates questioning his work ethic. Everything we know, there's a ton of smoke from a work ethic standpoint side of it. And to me, that just doesn't come out of nowhere, Nick. That's something that if you, it's your job to get the background on these players, to know that they can be the men that you want, not just the football players, but the men to rep, not just to represent your franchise, but to bring a locker room together. Winning locker rooms have this, have a, have a culture, you know, an inclusive culture that is, you know, pretty much contagious. You saw it with the 07 and 11 giants. You, you could see it from those behind the scenes looks inside the locker room. And, that's his job. That's the job of the scout, in my opinion. It's not the GM's job. General manager's not going to get to know every single prospect they draft. It's ridiculous to ask. Um, so, you know, it, it, that part of it's a little troubling to me, for sure. I find it hard to believe that the area scout didn't know these things. I, I personally, and I, I don't have any inside information into this, I think the area scout reported these things and a decision was made, and that's why there was so much conversation afterwards and people arguing about the picks. I think probably the area scout probably knew these things. I, maybe, I, I was, but, but then maybe it's his job to to make a point that this is too big of a risk at for for the for you know for this scenario trading up to thirty or whatever it was. I'm sure. I mean, th that could have happened though, dude. At the same yeah. time, I mean, that's I mean, a, yeah. You're right. That's why it's bad to speculate. And so, don't take my word as bond. I'm just speculating on what could have happened. No one was inside that room, but. Regardless of how this came to be, it seems like an awfully massive risk, you know, a boom bust risk. And this some can sometimes happen when you take these risks. Obviously, no one could have predicted the criminal side of this thing, obviously. But, you know, let's just hope he's innocent and it's all a big misunderstanding. And this helps him get on the straight and narrow from work ethic standpoint. Yeah, that'd be excellent. Yeah, seems like a lot to ask, though, unfortunately. And, and if it doesn't happen, it's going to be really tough for a franchise in this state to just burn a first-round pick, to basically trade Eli Apple, Damon Harrison, and their early second-round pick, uh, what was it, fourth over or sixth overall in the second round for for a player who's not going to be on the roster. Just It's going gonna, it's gonna to set them back. It really, really will. But we'll talk about that a little bit today. Um, you know, kind of the X's and O's of it and the depth chart side of it as we dive into Patrick Graham's defense, a breakdown of that. But first, let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. There is no shortage of action going on at our exclusive partner, Bet Online. NASCAR is back, and Bet Online has hundreds of other games, events, and sports to get in on. You can still bet on simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC events 24 7. Or, 
you can participate in a $10,000 Madden Bracket Challenge, a March Madness-style NFL simulation tournament you can enter for free. And coming up next Sunday, BetOnline has ex-Chicago Bulls Horace Grant, Bill Cartwright, and Craig Hodges joining them to discuss the Michael Jordan documentary on what they're calling After the Dance. Visit betonline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your new welcome bonus and check out all the action. BetOnline, your online wagering solution. Guys, looking to last longer and go a few extra rounds, am I right? Get to BlueChew.com. BlueChew.com has the first ever chewable that brings your performance in the bedroom to another level. They've got the same active ingredients that are in Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. And since they're chewable, they work faster. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. Plus, you don't need to go to the doctor's office or spend time waiting in the pharmacy line. Blue Chew's online physician is free of cost, and once approved, your order ships straight to your door in discreet packaging. Here's a great deal for you guys. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first order free when you use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. Just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's BlueChew.com, promo code Blue wire. All right, Nick, let's dive into Patrick Graham's defense. And let's start by taking that 30,000 foot view, the broad scope of things, the overview. So when a defensive coordinator comes in and obviously the Giants hired a new coordinator in Graham this offseason while also hiring a new head coach in, in Joe Judge, it's not, you know, the, these hires are not are not made in, you know, these hires. Everything's kind of all together. I, I'm trying to figure out the best way to explain this. So. When a coach hires a defense coordinator like this, it's not just because of his system. It's not just because he watched tape and said, ooh, that's an interesting concept he used here. It's because these coaches have to embody the overall philosophy that the head coach has. And do you feel like from watching Patrick Graham and from listening to Patrick Graham talk about football, he embodies some of the things that Joe Judge believes in and is bringing to the New York Giants? And if so, Nick, what are some of those things that stand out to you? Yeah, so Joe Judge, it's – it. You look at what he's preached since he's taken over. He's preached toughness, focus on the fundamentals, attention to detail. All the things that we kind of always say New England has in their arsenal. Well, Joe Judge is kind of bringing that over to the New York Giants. And the thing that he mainly wants in his coaching staff is educators. He doesn't want coaches to be like, okay, yeah, you, you do this. And yeah, you don't really need to know why. No, he wants a coach to thoroughly explain to their players why they're doing something so that player now knows, further educating that player and making him a smarter football mind, a smarter football player. And you look at the guys that Joe Judge has assembled himself. He's getting a doctorate in education. That's huge. And then he has Patrick Graham. Everybody's applauded him for his ability to educate and teach fundamentals and he makes complex things seem easier to understand. And then you have Jason Garrett, a Princeton grad. So I think I, I mean, I look at Patrick Graham and I look at just how he's viewed from just how past players have talked about him. And I think that um, Joe Judge found the exact kind of guy that he wanted to be his defensive coordinator. Yeah, no doubt about it. And there's a connection between them from their overall philosophy standpoint, but also from their specific defense, from a def specific defensive concept standpoint, you know, being this multiple defense that 
finds a way to rush the passer in waves and with different way, you know, specifying and putting the onus on coverage over having, you know, those one one or two guys that are just on the edge every single play, no matter what, and they're never off the field. And that to me goes into kind of it kind of works itself in with what Judge believes in. But also, more importantly, I think it kind of moves in the direction of where the Patriots kind of started with, and that's using so much sub package, Nick, so much nickel coverage and dime coverage with either five or six defensive backs on the field. And then even your linebackers who are on the field in any of these formations all can kind of do different things. They can drop in coverage. They can blitz. They can fill. They can be that alley defender in some cases to cover the slot. You know, sometimes even these guys you see dropping into the deep half or, or there's all sorts of roles for everyone pretty much on that second and third level. And so that's why when people talk about, you know, what's Graham going to run a four, three, a three, four, what is that? I don't think it comes down to a 4-3 or 3-4, especially not in today's NFL. And so I would kind of want you, Nick, to kind of take the time to dive into what kind of formations you see Graham utilizing and if that's kind of on par with how you envision his defense. Yeah, so I actually, uh, John Schmelk of Giants.com, he interviewed Patrick Graham, and he asked him a question right when uh, he got the job. And the question was about Graham's scheme in Miami and if it will resemble how he employs his defense here with the New York Giants. Graham basically said, that his scheme always revolves around his players, which is something that we love to hear. The Giants, to me, had better defensive talent than the 2019 Dolphins, who were fully in tank for Tua mode, albeit they ended up being better than the Giants in 2019, but we'll ignore that fact. But Graham gave insight to his defensive looks, and that insight was really indistinguishable, if you ask me. Basically, Graham said the Giants in 2020 are going to be a 3-4, 4-3, 2-4-5, 3 3 5 4 2 5 team. That will be very, very multiple. So if I had to deem it anything from what I saw on film, I'd probably say it had a lot of components of 3-4 or a 3-3-5 and some 4-3, but it depends on how you want to judge it because a lot of the times end man on the line of scrimmage to the strength was a linebacker, an outside linebacker by trade. It's, so it's kind of hard to gauge. But also seeing Graham use two two techniques with two wide outside linebackers. So, so seven, Nick, before you go any further, kind of break down what you mean by when he's using two two techs and then two wide outside linebackers, seven techs. So kind of dive a little bit more into what that means, how that looks, kind of if you can visualize okay. it. Yeah, yeah. So two technique is a player who is directly over the guard. Okay, so he's usually in a three point or four point stance. So that means the center is going to be uncovered. So there's going to be no one over the center. There's going to be two players directly over either the place, the play side, the backside guard. And then two wide players means they're going to be wide of the tackle box. They're going to be wide of the tackles. So those are going to be seven techniques because a five technique is generally somebody who's on the outside shoulder of the offensive tackle, whereas a six technique would be somebody who is on the tight end. So how does the tight end Nick from like a Y nine that you hear from like legit with Schwartz in Philadelphia. What's the yeah, difference? Y nine is just somebody usually like, it's just the entire line is going to be spread. And a Y nine is just further wide than what a seven technique, even be. further wide from the yeah. So the angle obviously gives speed rushers a more advantageous route sure. towards the quarterback. And it also doesn't really allow tackles to jump set or 45 degree set. They kind of have to vertical set in those yeah. kind of situations or else they're going to get beat by speed. When it comes to Graham though, He's just going to utilize a lot of different looks, but they're all going to have the same goal. Graham definitely seems more adaptable than most defensive coordinators from what I saw because I would see certain players used in a certain way one game and then totally be used in a 
different way the next game with another player filling in his old role due to not incompetence. Like it wasn't because the player who did it in the previous game was incompetent. You know what I'm saying? So Graham, he kind of plays the matchups and he plays to the strengths. And it kind of reminds me of what Joe Judge preaches. We're going to try to fit square pegs in round holes. So the whole 4-3 or 3-4 question is kind of moot. I mean, just for reference on how base defense doesn't really matter as much as the general fan thinks. I mean, the Giants were in base 3-4 less than 20% last year under James Badger. It's all about those nickel, those dime, those dollar sub-packages. Dan and I, I mean, we've talked about it how many times, about how Graham is going to employ a multifaceted defense. And he did that with Miami. And now I want to say he has better personnel. So, I mean, I wouldn't think of the Giants defense in these kind of Madden terms of 3-4, 4-3 either. I would say it's more about getting different body types and players into situations where they can have success depending on the down, distance, situation, and opponent. I mean, it's just it's not rigid at all. It's very malleable, and it's multiple. It's flexible, and the goal is to keep the offense honest with how their own different coverages, blitzes, and how they stop the run. So that's kind of the tenets that they're going to want to tackle. They're going to want to stop the run hit those coverages, make sure they blitz in a timely manner, affect the offense, play fundamentally sound football. Yep. I mean, I think it's all spot on from what I've researched as well, Nick. And it's interesting that you bring up I know we and I know we've talked about it a bunch on this podcast, but we'll continue to talk about this until it becomes a mainstream, you know, understanding across NFL Twitter, Giants Twitter, whatever, between all these football fans who actually care to know. And it's that just like the Giants last year with James Betcher, this is a trend across the NFL. Teams are no longer in these 4-3-3-4 looks for much of the time. Maybe one-fourth, usually one-fifth of the snaps, they're in these looks where they have seven, a big front seven up, up top. Normally now, we're looking at these nickel and dime packages. They're called sub-packages, and that means five defensive backs or six defensive backs, and sometimes these are safeties. Sometimes these are corners. You know, some teams will use linebackers in ways like this. Some teams will even use a safety as a linebacker in these looks. And that's why I think it's more so it was so important for them over the past two off seasons with Dave Gettleman to bring in all of these different second and third level defenders, Xavier McKinney, hopefully DeAndre Baker, um, Sam Beal to some extent, hopefully he can, you know, he's going to be asked to do more now. Corey Ballantine, maybe, you know, Julian Love, though. Julian Love, Xavier. Do we say Xavier McKinney, Ju- uh, Jabril Peppers? They've added a ton of talent to the to that level, the third level, but also the second level now. Blake Martinez, Kyler Fackrell, Carter Coughlin, Cam Brown. Um, who are we missing there? Ryan Connolly. So all these different guys who can do different things. There's a lot of guys there. Like you said, they won't be used in the same way every single game. It's really, I agree with you. I think they have better personnel than what the Dolphins had last year. The Dolphins last year had a really bad defensive line. Uh, you know, they had not really taken the time yet to invest in that interior defensive line. And it really does start up front. I, I, we have different opinions uh, than the mainstream, I would say, on, or not the mainstream, than some people on how to get that defensive line. I don't necessarily think you need to pour all your best resources into it, but it is super important to have. And when you don't have a big defensive front up there, it's tough to have a good defense. And Miami didn't have that. They had the corners last year for sure. They got better there. But I do think the Giants have better personnel. But I do want to touch uh, more specifically, Nick, on one interesting thing you said there that kind of got, I don't want it to get lost. Something you said at the end. You said there's tenets to every defense and that Grams aren't much different. What did you mean specifically by that? The tenets of his defense are pretty simple. Teach the fundamentals of building a wall 
and setting the edge to stop the run while utilizing the correct leverage with coverages against the pass. And what I mean by the latter statement is this. Corners don't just align themselves willy-nilly wherever they please. They're supposed to be lined up with a specific shade at a specific distance with a goal in mind. They could be, let's say, shaded on the outside shoulder of the receiver, inside shoulder, off the line of scrimmage, whatever, what have you. And then at the snap, corner can either attempt to redirect the receiver one way, either towards assisting coverage inside, which would be an outside shade like we see in certain cover three packages, or inside shade on trail technique that forces the quarterback to make a perfect throw over a trailing corner with an over-the-top defender coming. Or the corner could just be in man coverage and then his job is to not get beat vertical or horizontal, so spacing and leverage is important to mitigate quick throws where a wide receiver can just take a slant to the house like we used to see with Odell Beckham all the time. Right. Let's say the coverage is like a cover zero, which would be called with a heavy blitz attached to it. That's a situation where spacing is very, very important. Hold on, Nick. Let me back you up real quick. So I assume some Giants fans will know the term cover zero because anyone who watched the 2007 Super Bowl knows that that final touchdown pass to Plaxo Burris came against the Patriots calling cover zero. Eli kind of snipping that out and saying, they're giving cover zero. I'm taking this shot. But for those who might not know it, who have joined this podcast or are trying to learn more about the more about the X's and O's in the games, break down what cover zero means. Thank you so much, Dean Pease, for calling that cover zero and allowing Ellis Hobbs to get burnt by Plaxico Burris for that touchdown. Anyways, so cover zero is when the defense sends all. And basically all the eligible receivers are just covered in straight man coverage. So that's very, very difficult for the corners, safeties, or whoever is covering the eligible receivers. So that means there's going to be at least seven, eight men coming on a blitz. Usually probably seven, though. That means the offensive line and the offense, really, their protection is going to be overwhelmed. So the quarterback needs to get the ball out of his hand as fast as possible. So that's what cover zero means. It means, hey, I'm on coverage. That's my assignment. I'm in man coverage. I have no help. So literally, that guy wants to run a slant inside. If he beats me by a step, I don't make that tackle. Or if I dive at his legs and miss, that guy could easily run for a touchdown. There's no safety help. There's no one else. The only people who are going to be in the backfield with me are players who are also in cover zero who have their own assignments who are going to turn into blockers once my guy makes the catch. So it's a very risky coverage to call. It's a high risk. You could say high reward because you're obviously trying to disrupt the throw, force a fumble on the quarterback or something along those lines, put pressure into the quarterback's face is the main uh, thing with cover zero. But hey, the Dolphins last year, they called that 28 times, which was seventh most in the league. So it's not something that's wow. called every game. So, but they called it- But for them times. it was. It was something they called almost twice a game. Yeah, yeah. But seventh most in the league, they were aggressive, probably because their pass rush wasn't as good also. But obviously cover zero, very risky play call. But hey, you know, sometimes you got to risk it for the biscuit. You know what's interesting there, Nick? You mentioned they had the seventh most cover zero calls, 28 of them. And we talked earlier about how they really didn't have the personnel uh, that was excellent on the defense side of the ball. I mean, in fact, we think it was worse than maybe even what the Giants had on the defense side of the ball last year, but certainly what we project the Giants have on the defensive side of the ball this year. So with that in mind, Nick, I find it almost odd that we were kind of preached this bill of James Betcher coming over and being a very blitz-heavy coordinator like he was with the Cardinals, but then when he wasn't, and he wasn't really a very aggressive blitz-heavy coordinator with the Giants, it was always said that he doesn't trust the personnel. He doesn't feel like he has the personnel. And to me, maybe he just didn't trust his personnel to hold up with his kind of 
advanced coverages that he tried to use. You know, he tried to use pattern match all the time with the Giants corners, or at least more than maybe they were capable of right away for such a young group. And it led to him not blitzing as much as we were kind of sold a bill of goods on. And I feel like Graham, as a coordinator, almost took the opposite approach there, Nick, and said, I don't care. I'm not going to base this on my personnel. I'm going to base this on my belief that using this twice a game, if I can pick the right two times to use this during that game, and he used it almost twice a game, not exactly twice a game, can actually get my defense a win. It's also, uh, yeah, it's all dictated by down and distance and situation and everything like that. But yeah, definitely he embodied that aggressive ball. And you know what? It kind of makes sense when you look at the Dolphins last year with Brian Flores as the head coach. I mean, they had some steam towards the end of the season. They were playing a lot better than a lot of people thought they would because they were the doormat of the league. Everyone was saying, you know, by like week five, especially when they got blown out by the Ravens and then they, you know, lose to Dallas really bad. And they're just getting their, they're just getting spanked essentially. And people are just disrespecting them. So I could see why they're like, you know what? No, we're going to kind of put all the chips in and we're going to play aggressive football and try to really disrupt you. And I could see why Graham being the defensive coordinator would call cover zero so many times. Yeah. And he's an aggressive. I mean, he comes, like I said, that Patriots way, it's an aggressive mindset. It's, it's, it's based, you know, they, they put the, pre- the onus on coverage first, but they're not afraid to let these guys go in man coverage and try to lock down. And it's led to a lot of success for a lot of different defensive coordinators over the years. But outside of the cover zero blitz package, what other packages did you see from Graham during his time with the, uh, with the Dolphins? Miami blitzed on 35% of their snaps, actually, which was also seventh highest in the NFL, while turning it up a notch on third down by blitzing 41% of the time. So it kind of goes along the line. And that was the third highest, correct? Yeah, it was the third highest. Good job, yeah. I mean, that just goes along with what we were saying about Patrick Graham. I mean, you got to think about the similarities between the 2020 Giants, 2019 Dolphins. I mean, both teams lack that quote-unquote blue goose pass rusher. So I expect a similar vibe from the Giants. I mean, as of now, the Giants don't have a pass rusher that will consistently win one versus one. So bringing five, six-man pressures may be a common thing that we end up seeing on Sunday. That, of course, would lead to more man coverage on the back end, which also checks out with Miami's film. The Dolphins were man coverage more than 50% of the time last year, tying the Patriots for second in the NFL, only behind the Lions. All Patriots descendants right there were Belichick, so that's kind of interesting. But luckily for the Giants, they just signed... James Bradbury, and they have Darnay Holmes. And uh, obviously, we don't know what's going on with Baker, but we'll see. And they also got Julian Love, Jabril Peppers, Xavier McKinney. They can all do well in man coverage, depending on the assignment. So you got the Lions, the Patriots, and Giants, all that Belichick coach teams or Belichick himself. So it kind of makes sense. But it's obvious why the Giants continue to invest in their secondary. People said that they invested too much. I do not think so. I don't think you think so as well, especially when you look at... Certainly not now. (laughs) Certainly not now. But you look at that Patriot model, man, and they're more about finding secondary pieces and having their secondary excel while they're finding the right pieces to play along that front line to get pressure through scheming, which I also like. But last year, we saw the Giants with James Betcher. It was just such a vulnerable part of the defense. I mean, it was just picked apart. It was a very young team. But another fun third down call Graham implements is a 3-2-6 look, a one technique, which is somebody who is shaded off the uh, outside shoulder of the center. So it's not a direct zero. He's not head-to-head with the center, but he's shaded to the outside shoulder. And then two wide nine techniques, along with two linebackers that either sugar the shit out of the A or B gap. And when I say sugar, something that means that they're lining up and they're showing like they're going to blitz and they may or they may not, and they pull out. So that's what I mean by when I say sugar, the A gap. What he means by the A gap and the B gap, explain that as well. Yeah, the A gap is right where they're um, between the center and the guard, and the B gap is between the guard and the tackle. Okay, so 
and then uh, so going back, it's a one tech, two wide nines, along with the two linebackers that sugar the A or B gap, or just they end up coming on the blitz. Those two linebackers also align in a three three. And what I mean by that is a three technique, three yards off the line of scrimmage. So whenever I refer to linebackers in the three three or a two four, that means the first number is the technique that they're that they're over that we apply to the line of scrimmage and then the second is the yardage that they're off so those two linebackers are usually around a three 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 technique three yards off the line of scrimmage and i saw graham use this look and then adjust by either sending the five-man pressure package dropping the weak side end off into coverage and just sending four only send three and drop two of those linebackers into hook zone or man against two running back sets or just stunt it somehow it's very unpredictable it doesn't set a trend and i really liked how he was able to kind of do that you know in the beginning of the game and then throw it later in the game and kind of just really mess with the young quarterbacks yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There's a lot of different concepts that he's going to bring to his defense, but there are tenets, and those tenets, in my opinion, are an aggressive nature. You went over it. I mean, they had the third highest total third down blitz rate in the NFL. They were the seventh highest blitzing team on any down in the NFL, and they used cover zero, which is just a heavy, aggressive call, the seventh most times. And then you combine that. Um, you know, with the second tenant, which is man coverage, like you said, in man coverage on most more than half the snaps, that was tying the Patriots for the second most in the NFL. And like you said, the Lions were first most. So it's those same three teams from the same three styles of defense, the Patriots way. And those are the tenants. So if, if anything, you know, if nothing else, we can guarantee Giants fans two things. They're going to see a lot more aggressive or a lot more aggressive defense with more blitzes. That means more than four players rushing the quarterback at once and they're going to see a lot more man coverage during the 2020 season and that's the, those are the things we can guarantee we can't guarantee that it's going to work any better or worse than what we've had with James Betcher but we can guarantee that it's going to change a little different but as in, aside from that on a more you know specific level Nick what were some of the other types of blitzes you saw Graham use like we said, the good thing about Graham's defense is the multifaceted looks where the Dolphins would come out with a one technique and five roving second level defenders in second and long and third and intermediate situations. Granted, it wasn't always consistent with these downs and distances. And Dan and I have talked about this in previous podcasts, how we would see that. You would see those five guys just roving, never committing themselves. I love to see this because it keeps the offense on its toes. And Miami, man, he blitzed from these confusing, fluid looks where all those second-level defenders and two-point stances are just roving around before the snap. Where are they going? Are they blitzing? Are they dropping into coverage? What's their gap intentions like? What are their assignments? Offense has no idea. Graham brings these blitzes from different looks, different alignments with different personnel and from different positions, which really affects the ability for an offense to see where the pressure is coming pre-snap. Offensive lines need to know where to slide their protection, and this strategy helps to disguise the defense's intentions, which is definitely a plus. The concealment of the blitzing is enhanced by the amount of press man coverage that the Dolphins ran last year. So according to Pro Football Focus, they were fifth in the league in press man with 481 plays in that alignment. Press man disrupts the timing of receivers routes and it can be used to help the corner establish leverage. You can stick a receiver with a one hand jam and ride directing them outside with disciplined hip turn and positioning, which is something that I expect to see here from the defense. I mean, press man. Usually, it's typically better executed by corners with longer arms. So if DeAndre Baker plays, it helps because 32-inch arms is 72nd percentile. And again, Baker played press man at Georgia, and he excelled there. It's probably one reason why the Giants liked him. Having a press man corner isn't something that 
a lot of colleges are giving off these days. So 32-inch arms, a 72nd percentile. They bring in James Bradbury, who has 33 and 3 inch arms. That's 97th percentile. So theoretically, they could execute these techniques well. But again, that's theoretically. There's more to just ha- there's more to press man than just having long arms. But I've also seen Graham man, when going back to the blitzes, employ those Kavika Mitchell type blitzes. It's like how I how I like to refer to it because it really messes with the post snap reads of both the offensive line and the quarterback. And now we can remember back to Super Bowl 42 when Kavika Mitchell fake dropping into coverage to open up the A gap. And this is obviously against the Patriots, just to fly through that A gap unabated on a blitz to disrupt the play. Because the center and the guard, both they both went to help on double teams because they didn't think Mitchell was coming on the blitz, and he did. And I, you see Graham implement these kind of blitzes, along with stunts and twists on the line of scrimmage to affect the offense. Opposing offensive lines, man, are going to have their work cut out for them. Their decision-making post-snap will have to be quick with this kind of very look. On the flip side, Graham's all about deception, which is an edge any coach is trying to gain on their opponent. So visibly showing a blitz right before and right after halftime, kind of like I was saying before, and then bailing into coverage on those plays to set a trend for these younger quarterbacks while coming back in the fourth quarter to do that same thing but come aggressively on that blitz to break the trend is something that he's also shown. Not establishing defensive trends and keeping the opponents guessing is something that Graham will do with these Giants, and I love to see that. I also saw Graham attempt trap coverage on backside receivers with the end man on the line of scrimmage. So the end man on the line of scrimmage at the snap takes a big step towards that tackle and then fades into coverage underneath the backside receiver. If the receiver's stem is vertical, or even a quick inside slant, which would probably be better, and the corner's playing off-man, the quarterback's going to be like, oh, the corner's off-man, I just saw that defensive end step up, what am I going to do? I'm going to make that throw. And then what happens? Throws it right to the defensive end, that's an interception. We actually saw Eli Manning throw a pick in a similar situation like that against the Dolphins this year. So I just like how he kind of manipulates quarterbacks, kind of baits them with different alignments, different coverages, different blitzes, just kind of keeps him on his toes. And that's definitely an advantage that you can gain when your personnel isn't as good as some of the top-notch defenses. And last year, his personnel wasn't. It didn't necessarily work out, but all you need is a couple plays to kind of help swing a game. Like that interception against Eli Manning, you know, gave the Dolphins a lot of momentum. Did they end up winning the game? No, Eli ended up getting the win. But still, those, those moments can really mean a lot. Yeah, Nick, and there's a lot to unpack there. I want to start with what I kind of felt was the most important thing you kind of unveiled there, and it's what you mentioned about Graham, that he understands trends and uses them to his his advantage, and this is something that he undoubtedly learned from being in that Patriot system. It is a Belichick staple of understanding trends and tricking opposing coaches by doing things like, I've even heard that Belichick calls certain plays when he's up big in the fourth quarter to kind of mess with the stats and the analytics to make it look like the Patriots do X in X situation, in Y situation. But really then when they get to that Y situation in a game that matters or a moment that matters, they're going to pull out Z because the team's expecting X. And that is just a classic Patriots way. It's looking for any edge you can get. And one of those key edges is u- utilizing trends to your advantage by bluffing things early and using thing, different things from that same look. I, that's one of the staples on the offensive side of the ball I always thought that I would have preferred to see from Shermer and McAdoo at times, um, you know, if they used more of the jet sweep motion and then showed one thing, showed one thing, did something different later in the game. And I love to hear that that's on his mind as a defensive coordinator because that is so important to me, getting that little edge, just gaining that. It seems small, that edge, Nick, but to me it makes a big difference uh, from a coaching standpoint. And I also love that you mentioned that we'll be seeing a lot more 
of those, as you term them, Kavika Mitchell type blitzes, really just peppering the A and B gaps. I mean, Mike Zimmer, who was an excellent defensive coordinator with the Bengals before becoming an excellent defensive minded head coach with the Minnesota Vikings, has basically made a career on peppering the A and B gap. And I am a huge believer in blitzing and peppering the A and B gap, even if you're fake blitzing and dropping, but being, but for the most part, staying aggressive and blitzing the A and B gaps. I mean, we saw some success even from the Giants when they used Alec Ogletree in this role, but he didn't blitz enough, and he had really good numbers when he blitzed Ogletree, but it didn't happen often under Betcher. And I'm happy to hear that this is a coordinator who understands the usefulness and the kind of hidden gem, I would call it, of utilizing those types of blitzes uh, in his defense more often than not. Especially when you blitz those two, and then you have, say, an end the end man on the line of scrimmage drop off and angle his route to like a middle of the field hook zone in between the hashes. So if you're a young quarterback, think about it. You have two guys lined up in the a gap and they're both coming directly at you. You're not really paying attention or even have the time to make that read of that end. You probably think he's coming too. So if there's a quick, what do they get the ball out of your hands? If the pressure is there, if you have a quick, like, you know, uh, middle of the field hook route or something like that from in either side tight end. That's how they can run that route. And then you could just be like, oh, I'm just going to get this ball out. And you know, it should be a vacated area because we have two linebackers coming through the a gap. I'm just going to get the ball out. And then he doesn't even see that other defender coming underneath the other route. And that can lead to turnovers. So I, I just like the, uh, I just love the, uh, the manipulation there. Yeah, no doubt. And then, so you've talked a little bit about how we'll see a ton of man coverage and, Within that, a lot of press man coverage. But talk a little bit about what kind of specific coverages you're going to see on the back end in this Patrick Graham defense. And like you just mentioned, I mean, they're predominantly a man coverage team, mostly middle of the field close. So we're talking single high or triple high looks. And cover three is common, not nearly as common as man coverage in this Patrick Graham defense, but there are a lot of variations of cover three. So there's cover three cloud, which is cover three with the corners playing cover two techniques at the line of scrimmage. One corner jams to reroute inside towards those curl flat defenders. And when I say curl flat defenders, I mean, I think people always hear that and they don't necessarily know what it means. A curl flat defender is a defender whose first responsibility is the curl route. And then they drop to the flat. So, the first thing they're going to defend is that curl, and then they're dropping to the flat. So that's what their first assignment is. That's what they're first looking for. So one corner in this cover three cloud, one corner jams to reroute inside towards those curl flat defenders while bailing back to the deep one third. The other corner jams and sinks to the flat with safety help over the top. Cloud is usually used and effective against number one types receivers or speed receivers because there's a safety shading in that specific direction over the top of the strong side corner or the corner who was going up against Julio Jones and, or receivers like that. It could be the backside. It could be the weak side. It just depends on where that corner is lined up. But the strong side corner, say, he can jam, he could sink while the weak side corner jams and bails to the deep one third. I mean, it's just depending on how the coordinator wants to call it, but that's the basics of, of cloud. So cloud usually starts with a too high look with a safety rotating pre-snap. I saw some of that, but I also saw some cover three sky plays where the safety rolls into the box outside of the number two receiver to the strength. And this is all happening pre-snap. While the Mike and Sam play inside leverage in their hook zone, the other defenders, the will and strong safety, depends on whoever the other defender could be the free safety, depends on how you want to line up again. Just saying, this is just basics. They play the number two receiver, presuming this is a two by two set, and they have outside leverage to funnel 
those receivers towards the hook zone defenders. It just kind of makes sense. You know, you have inside help. What are you going to try to do? You're going to try to have those defenders or you're going to try to have those wide receivers release off the line of scrimmage inside because that's where your help is. But the Sam in these situations has to ensure that he carries the tight end up the seam to the middle of the field safety. So the depth of the Sam is usually extended on these types of play. Typically, what Graham did, he would trust his most athletic linebacker or safety. Usually it was Eric Rowe, to be honest, in these two by two situations. So for context, Eric Rowe is a safety. Rowe in 2019 lined up 446 times in the box last season as a safety which really alludes to how Graham is going to use either Love, Peppers, or McKinney. It's going to be a lot, a lot of three safety looks in these right situations, second and long, third and intermediate, third and long. So as for these safeties, last season for Graham, Rowe was on the weak side a lot with Stephen Parker, who was another safety, playing strong side. And then nickel corner, Bobby McCain, used to be the nickel corner, is playing deep middle. So you have three safeties out there. Three safety looks were so prevalent. I'm telling you, Giants fans, we are going to see a lot of McKinney and Peppers or even Love in the box. It's going to happen. Because these three safety looks with Rowe and Parker and, and Bobby McCain, they were out there. So you expect yep. this from the Giants. And also typically in sky coverage, corners align about seven yards off the ball with outside leverage against the number ones. So by, what I mean by number ones, again, it doesn't mean like number one lies in like Julio Jones or someone like that. I'm talking number ones is the, further, the furthest most outside receiver on either side. So the corners want to stay in between the sideline and the man to force the ball in between the safety and the corner when you have that sky help. Football is a game of space and leverage, so positioning, spatial awareness, and just overall athletic ability are vital to maintain the continuity of the coverage post-snap. So another type of cover three coverage that I saw was cover three buzz. Sort of similar to cover three sky, but the strong safety in this play is that creeps down as a curl flat defender. So strong safety kind of creeps down right before the snap, and this is a kind of a good way to disguise a three-high look. It shows cover one right before the snap. But the corners, who are impressed man, they jam, and then they bail. So they're dropping to the deep third. So they could jam, or they could bail right away. So it's not going to be pressed man as much, you know, because they're bailing back to their deep one-third responsibility. While that strong safety essentially becomes the force linebacker against the run, while being in prime position to kind of drive down on underneath throws to the strength of the formation. So if the tight end decides to run a drag, four-yard stick, or a snag, then that safety, who was creeping down right before the snap, would be in the optimal position to kind of fly in and crush the soul of the tight end. Graham employed all three of these types of cover three defenses, these type of coverages, I should say, to a certain extent. Extent, but not nearly as much as man coverage and single high looks. But you can kind of see if you go back, you watch some film, you'll see three high, you'll see these kind of, you'll see the safety kind of buzz down, you'll see the sky coverage against uh, certain types of receivers, you see cloud against certain types of receivers. But um, mainly be prepared to see a lot of man coverage because that's what we're going to see. Yeah, it seems like it's going to be a lot of man coverage, and you did an excellent job breaking it down and going a little more specific on it. I'll ask you to take a step even a little further in that range of being a little more specific. So let's just break it down. Like, let's say the cover three buzz look you were referencing last there. Let's go there. Um, you know, who do you see in that scenario being that potential, um, what's it called, the potential drive linebacker, the guy who, the safety who comes down, that type of, that, in that type of role for the Giants, the fourth gonna, linebacker? I would say mostly Jabril Peppers, but yeah. also Xavier McKinney. Right, and I, I think it will be Xavier McKinney, too. That's the that, that's kind of what I was driving at there, Nick. I was curious if you thought that as well, because I think that's where, I think they can be used interchangeably almost in these roles. And that's that's the that's what 
you and I were so happy about. Because we before we really broke down this and did this podcast, when the Giants drafted David McKinney, like, you're getting a really good second-level defender. And I know Patrick Graham's very multifaceted. He's going to want to use these guys in different coverages, different looks, different alignments, different ways. And Peppers and McKinney can both do this. Love can probably do this. We haven't really seen as much of it, but I'm sure that it's in his wheelhouse because he's been somebody that we saw operate around line of scrimmage to a high degree. They did well blitzing. So I think Julian Love can also be implemented here. All three of these guys on the field, you can literally have the two, you can have one of the safeties at nickel. You can have the other one doing, you know, acting like he's dropping down. And then you could have that nickel blitz. You can have that other safety take man coverage or take some kind of zone on that slot receiver. There's just the, the options are endless when you have talented, smart football players who know what to do pre and post snap. And that's what you have in Jabril Peppers. That's what you have in Julian Love. And that's what you have in Xavier McKinney. Yeah, it makes me think that Julian Love is going to be a much bigger piece of this defense this season as I really dive a little more deep into hearing these coverages broken down specifically like this. Of course, man. It's, it's it's really exciting, and uh, it sucks with DeAndre Baker thrown into this because we're not we're not one hundred percent sure what's going to happen with that other starting outside corner position, which is obviously a huge part. Because if you have any weak links on a defense, the offense is going to target it. We saw it last year with the Giants and the nickel position that everyone knew that the Giants couldn't cover the vertical, and yep. what happened? Offensive coordinators were throwing the vertical seam against the Giants, against that nickel, against Grant Haley, to the point where the Giants had to replace him. And they loved Grant Haley as a forced defender. They thought he was very, very aggressive against the running. You know what? He was. Pound for pound, the dude was one of the toughest guys on the team last year. He just didn't have the athletic ability or the vertical ability, the speed to cover those deep those deep routes against that position. And that's one of the most vital parts. You need to keep the continuity of the defense together. If you have one piece of the puzzle missing, it's going to be exposed. Yeah, and I look at it like this, Nick. I look at it like people say, why did they take Darnay Holmes at the beginning of day three? Was that a need pick, or they just thought the value was too good? To me, the va- it's because they thought the value was too good, but why are not, not enough people talking about that as a legit need pick as well? I mean, they needed to get someone who could do a better job of covering the slot and stopping those slot verticals. They didn't really have anyone who fit the profile before the draft. DeAndre Baker, more of a man outside guy, you know, Ballantine, um, Sam Beal, Sam Beal, it's not his, those four are not slot guys. And then you talk about what else, but they tried last year. That still may be on the roster. How about Haley, Grant Haley? Well, he was a disaster there. Let's be honest. He was a great force defender. Like you said, he was tough, toughest player on the team, pound for pound, great stuff. He helped against the run, but he was a liability in coverage and the numbers should have been even worse than what they were. If not for a few missed, you know, well, uh, poorly placed balls by quarterbacks. And then they tried Ballantine an outside corner. Let's see if he can stick in the slot. It wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to be a thing where one year later, uh, one of these two magically locked down the slot. So they went out and I thought it was, I, to me, it's one. It could be one of the best picks of the entire class to start it. I said it the day of, night of. I know I was one of the few people who was who was happy with that pick and more enthused by it than others. But I think that he is a player that I am keeping an eye on to play. A, like I said, him and Love, I think, will be huge components of this defense this season. You were more high on it than me, for sure. I I thought maybe they were going to go a direction of a of a Julian Love in the slot, which I still think we're going to see a lot of. And then Xavier McKinney, who they drafted, I still think we're going to see a lot of that in that three-safety look. I think there's going to be a lot of those guys covering those slot receivers. But then you got to think of the speedier, quicker receivers. I'm not sure if Love and McKinney have the sticky man coverage ability to stick on those really fast slot guys, whereas someone like Darnay Holmes 
might. So that's where it really gets interesting. We know Haley doesn't, unfortunately. So that, that's something that I'm looking forward to. I don't know what Askew Henry is going to offer this team, uh, but hopefully he can go in and he can prove himself in uh, whatever kind of training camp we have. Yeah, no doubt. Okay, so now I want to touch a little bit more on specifics to the coverages we'll see. So we know that last year with Patrick Graham as their defensive coordinator, Miami was mostly a middle of the field closed defense. Now, I want to ask you outside of – it's a two-part question, Nick. First of all, outside of the middle of the field closed looks, what other coverages do you see more specifically? But then backing it up first and kind of explaining this before you dive into that, explain what it means when you say middle of the field closed co- uh, coverage team. Yeah, so middle of the field closed, and this is how NFL teams look. It's like, okay, we'll go, we have middle of the field closed or middle of the field open. Middle of the field closed means there's a safety in the middle of the field. So that means it's either cover three or cover one. So there's a single high, three deep. That means you cannot attack really the vertical middle of the field. There's a lot of importance in controlling the middle of the field. That's why the slot seam has been something that's been, you know, people have coveted. But Middle of the field open means that it's open. That's usually a two high. So either a man under, which is two safeties and man coverage underneath those two safeties, or cover two, which we all know because a lot of us, I would imagine, have played Matt. So cover two, that's middle of the field open. There's a huge vulnerability. There's a couple of vulnerabilities in cover two. One, there's a big vulnerability on back shoulder throws and just throws in between the cornerback and that safety because there's so much space to cover for those safeties who are usually aligned, uh, who are usually told to go towards the numbers. But then you look at the middle of the field, the deep middle of the field is wide open. And that's why the Tampa 2 defense was created because in Tampa 2, the difference between a uh, cover 2 and a Tampa 2 was is that middle linebacker drops to a much further depth than the other two linebackers to kind of mitigate the risk of the vertical the vertical the vertical pass in the middle of the field. So there when you're running a middle of the field open defense, you're very vulnerable to any kind of slot vertical or tight end seam. You're very vertical on the seams, I guess is like the most simple way I can put it because those safeties are expanding out to cover those outside receivers and what happens wide open. So that's how NFL teams kind of look at it. And that's why a lot of teams run a lot of middle of the field close because cover two, I mean, it's not obsolete, but it's not as popular these days because it has been exposed with the speed of the NFL. So we're talking about Patrick Graham. He mostly employed middle of the field close. He's going to do that same thing with the New York Giants. But he also employs mixed defenses of man and zone. So I saw variations of cover two, you know, too high, two men under all those kind of things but i also saw cover seven which i would say cover seven type of reps because it wasn't like strictly cover seven but cover seven essentially is where the number one corner locks on solo coverage versus the number one receiver to the boundary while the two safeties play robber roles on inside breaking routes so one of the safeties would be near the line of scrimmage and drop underneath the number one to the strength while, while the number one corner on that side drops deep, so it forms kind of a bracket coverage over that receiver. And I've seen mixtures of the Mike, Sam, and Nickel in these specific plays, all playing man coverage, with the Nickel playing outside leverage to entice the slot receiver on the other side to break inside, where the free safety, who is off the line of scrimmage, drops down. And that's basically enticing the quarterback to throw, because the Nickel's giving outside leverage, he's like, hey, I'm going to run a slant to that slot receiver. He's going to go inside, and that safety's going to drop deep into a cover one. And that's what he's thinking, given the alignment. But 
that free safety is dropping down. He's kind of baiting him. You know, he's playing that robber role. Right. He's taking away those slants, those posts, those digs, and trying to force possible interceptions. And I've also seen the Mike, Sam, and Nickel drop into zones off of these kind of coverage, with the free safety dropping to a deep half and the strong side corner angling his coverage inward, essentially forming a cover two defense, with the strong safety focusing on trapping that strong side number one on inside breaking routes. So Graham has several iterations of different assignments based on alignments and situations. And if you want to see some uh, something interesting, Dan Hatman of the Scouting Academy did a really cool video on Xavier McKinney after the Giants drafted him and how he'll more than likely be utilized like Bobby McCain was for the 2019 Dolphins. So McCain, like I said earlier, he's a former nickelback, was used all over the formation. His responsibilities ranged from single high, deep half, robber, lined up anywhere in the box or even on the line of scrimmage. And he either blitzed, he bailed, he did so many different things. Man on the slot, man on the running back, man on the tight end. The options were varied and again, like I said earlier, it didn't establish a consistent trend that would be easy to identify. And I expect a ton of man coverage, like I said, a good amount of pressure, and a lot of different assignments from these second-level defenders who are versatile. Because versatility is the key, Dan, and McKinney, Peppers, love, they're all versatile. And Graham's going to use them all in different ways if they can handle these kind of assignments and responsibilities, which I feel like they all have the physicality, the athletic ability, the mental processing, that football key, IQ, all those things to kind of do all these different things. And like I said earlier, he's going to use maybe McKinney one way, one game, and then a different matchup, use Jabril in, in a similar way that he used McKinney in the, in the previous game. So obviously, what does the offense do? What do teams do? They do a lot of film work. So they're going to see how these players are used. And if they can each do each other's job at a high level, What's the trend? What are they going to do this week? And they do what they do last week. They do what they do two weeks ago. So I really like just the, the flexibility that Graham is providing himself by adding these kind of players onto this roster and kind of what he showed in Miami. He's going to have a lot better players now. So it's it's exciting. Yeah, there's no doubt about it, Nick. And we've talked, you know, at length about what we expect to see from him from a philosophical standpoint, and that involves utilizing trends to his advantage, setting up opposing offensive coordinators to do, to do different things later in the game and kind of be a little mischievous and trick, tricky. And from that standpoint, we expect a ton of man coverage. We've gone over how blitz-heavy he is overall and on third downs, how he likes to pepper the A and B gaps, how he's not afraid to go there, and all the different kind of coverage looks that you just talked about on the back end, how the versatility is super important because of these different looks he's going to use and because he's going to use players in different roles week to week, down to down. There's not going to be one specific role for Xavier McKinney. There's a bunch of roles for Xavier McKinney and so on and so forth. But one thing we didn't focus as much on, Nick, and we touched on it a bit at the beginning, but I wanted to touch a little bit more on it, was how we expect these interior defensive linemen, the down linemen, to kind of operate. We know in the past with James Betcher, we were, you know, we we were told they were they were utilized in a very aggressive way to kind of their their goal and objective was always to kind of shoot the gaps and attack uphill. Is that going to change at all in Patrick Graham's defense? I I mean, for me, I saw a lot of just setting the wall, kind of like I said before. So you see. I mean, Christian Wilkins was drafted in the first round last year out of Clemson by the Dolphins, and he was probably their best interior defensive lineman last season. And he would, I mean, I saw him two gaps sometimes. I saw him one gap. And what I mean by that is his responsibility was either two gaps 
or one gapping. So basically a two gapper would probably play head over like a two technique or something like that. And his responsibility would be that a B gap that was next to him. So I saw different things from him. I wouldn't say that it's, that it's necessarily like better in a running situation where it's going to be a gap penetration. I think they're going to, the players will read their run keys and they're going to react that way. If they know it's a pass, they're going to attack and try to defeat the block and get to the quarterback. But I don't necessarily uh, think they're just going to be, okay, we're always going to gap penetrate. You know what I'm right. saying? I think it's, yeah, I, I do know what you're saying. I think it's going to be a very different look for Giants fans moving forward than what they're used to over the last two seasons from those down linemen. If you just, and I'm basing this off of what I've seen from Graham in Miami, what I've seen from Bill in New England, what I've seen from Patricia in Detroit, and so on and so forth with these disciples. The defensive linemen are going to be used in a different way than what we got, what we became accustomed to and used to under Betcher. Yeah, and with these two gappers too, the thing that it, it allows you to do and why you two gap is it works when you have a really big person who can take on double teams. So if I'm a two gapping, and you guys remember Justin Smith, he was a defensive end for the 49ers back when the 49ers were under Harborough and even before that. he They used to run a lot of two gap there for the 49ers. And the goal was to eat up two blocks. And Justin Smith was guilty of this all the time. And I remember he got called against the Giants for this. I'm not remember I don't not sure what game, but he would do this all the time. He was famous for it because he was so strong at the point of attack he could do it. Double teams would hit him and he would just hold. He would hold. It would be defensive holding. And his job was you're not going to reach my linebackers. You're not going to reach Alden Smith. And that's how Alden Smith had, I mean, and because Alden Smith was a very productive player, I'm not taking anything away from him, but he had a lot of production because of players like Justin Smith playing. So you're going to, I'm not going to allow you to take away my linebackers. My linebackers can kind of read their keys and then they can react and I'm going to hold up you so you can't go and block him. And when you two gap, you can do that. You can also you can you can control both those gaps. You can allow your linebackers to kind of be free and kind of maneuver the way that they can to make the optimal play for the defense. So I I just um I, I would, I'm going to be excited if I see a lot more of that with the Giants, which I expect. Yeah, me too. All right, Nick, is there anything else that we didn't touch on so far regarding Patrick Graham's defense, the specifics, the X's and O's, the nuts and bolts of it that you wanted to get off your chest or dive a little bit deeper into? I mean, we have the Dan Dugan article that uh, I, I stumbled across, and he basically he interviewed uh, former Giants linebacker Calvin Munson, and he they talked about Patrick Graham's defense and how it was similar to what uh, Belichick does in New England. Munson, he was on the Patriots practice squad. I didn't know this, but he was on the Patriots practice squad, and he spent the end of 2019 in Miami with Graham. And Munson said that his transition into the Dolphins' defense late in the year wasn't too bad because Graham's defense was akin to Bill Belichick's just with different terminology, essentially. So Munson said the key to the defense are just players who possess high football intelligence. And Dugan also has quotes from Avery Moss, who was a former Jerry Reese pick out of Youngstown State, represent. Now, I'm not from Youngstown State, but I do like, you know, smaller school guys. So Moss was quoted as saying this about Graham's system. He said, quote, honestly, it wasn't that bad since it all came from the same basics. It all kind of blends together in a sense. It's a cool little system. For a guy like me coming out of Betcher's system, I think Betcher's might have been the hardest system I've ever learned. Coming to this, this was simple. And Moss also referred, unquote, Moss also referred to Graham as a front seven specialist who was an expert with fitting the run. And that doesn't surprise me, honestly. I mean, Graham was a Giants defensive line coach 2016 to 17 before becoming the linebacker coach for Green Bay. He knows a thing or two about fitting the run and the front seven. Moss also credited Graham for the strong finish of the season for the 2019 Miami Dolphins. And this quote was, quote, 
He put in the hours, man. It was crazy. Dude didn't see his family. He would sleep at work and then get back to work. He was grinding so hard. Everybody could see this really mean something to him. So it drew us all together. Like, we've got to get this right. This isn't how it's supposed to be. And he does a lot of minor things that are real cool to keep us all intertwined together, like family. He had us do a lot of stuff joking with each other and stuff like that within our group just to make it feel like a family. That's an actual quote. It's like back in college feeling. It made everybody want to play that much harder for him the next game. We're not going to mess this up for him. I love to hear that, Dan. Yeah, I mean, I love to hear it too. I think it's a great quote um, and a great way to kind of wrap up what this podcast and what we, you know, what kind of impact Patrick Graham on a made on a player like Avery Moss, who uh, really probably felt at times like his NFL dream was over and it wasn't going to happen after, you know, he fizzled out a bit with the Giants and had injuries earlier in his career, former fifth round pick. Um, great to see him have a little bit of a revival there and just great to see that the stretch run they made, you know, the, the, the run they made down the stretch there in Miami, it was in ways defense focused. Ryan Fitzpatrick made some plays, but he also turned the ball over at a ridiculous rate and put the defense in really tough spots. And a lot of those wins, when you look back at them were more, you know, you could more way more easily attribute them to the defensive side of the ball. Um, so I'm excited about what Graham can bring. I really am mostly for me. It's just a more aggressive style. With, with with more man coverage, I think will really suit the personnel that they have. And also, in my opinion, it really is a better way to play defense. And I agree. And, and that, that extends for me to, you know, the whole idea of building the wall in, uh, in the run game. I really think that what these teams are doing, these teams that are using analytics in a sense and other factors to kind of put the pass coverage first over the pass rush, are gaining advantage. The Ravens started this thing up. The Patriots, though, under the radar, have been doing it for years before that. And both of those teams really don't have many big contracts on the defensive side of the ball. They have a few because they've drafted well, but they let a lot of their guys go in free agency, and then they replace them almost immediately, like key cogs in the system. Like, it, and, and I feel like, honestly, Nick, when this system starts to gel and when it gets rolling, it becomes that. It becomes a system that you can trade in and out different players who can fill different roles different times based on different down distance and maybe yeah this mix the giants currently have may not be their best mix it may not be the best mix they have this uh in the next three years if, if things go well and graham stays but i do feel like they're getting closer to finding that mix and i do feel like they're in headed in the right direction when it comes to finding that mix of defensive players and there just shouldn't be as much blown coverage i mean the reason there was a lot of blown coverage is because the coverage was difficult with Betcher's pattern match. I mean, just going off of what like Rip Liz is, which is basically what Saban instituted with as the Browns defensive coordinator back in the early 90s under Bill Belichick to defeat the Pittsburgh Steelers because they couldn't stop the run and they couldn't stop the vertical passing game. So he came up with something Rip Liz. It's basically a way to just run cover three concepts while keeping an extra man in the box in a cover one defense and Essentially, it's all based off of how you read a receiver's initial stem. So if the number two receiver would end up going deep, then you take him deep. But if he ends up going under, that's not your responsibility anymore. So it's a lot of quick adjustments, a lot of quick reactionary discipline. And players like DeAndre Baker and some of the younger players, it was really confusing for them to kind of master that. So because your assignments can change like that and offenses know you run this kind of system so what do they do they use a lot of pre-snap motion to manipulate you and that really messed with a lot of these younger players so now it's going to be a much more simplified version so say if that number two receiver 
who is, you know, you have a number one receiver outside of him and you have you know, a tight end on the line of scrimmage or something like that. If he goes under, you can take him now instead of call it, making an under call and then having your assignments totally change in a micro second of a play and then you have to adapt. That's why there were so many blown coverages was because a lot of these guys didn't know what they were supposed to be doing because they would question themselves or they didn't know what that initial receiver stem was going to be or there was a double move. You know, they would bite down and then it would end up so another receiver would end up kind of replacing his spot going vertical. There was just a lot of moving parts to that defense. Patrick Graham has a lot of moving parts, but the principles and the rules to the defense are still simplified when you compare it to James Betchers. Yeah, no doubt. And I think that, you know, with or without DeAndre Baker, I fully expect this defense to be more efficient. Regardless of the personnel, I'm a big believer in Graham's concepts and just the general tenets and principles that we talked about, um, especially as it relates to specifically the type of personnel that this roster currently has um, after three years with Gettleman. So really looking forward to seeing this in action whenever the Giants finally do hit the field again. I'd love to get those. I'm, I'm longing, Nick, just for those training camp, uh, mandatory mini camp reports that just show the different alignments on defense. Those are always my favorite. Who's being used where and how often. But we may not get that. We may get that at some time point in the future. Who knows right now with how everything's going. But we're going to keep it locked and loaded I'm Big Blue Banther, and we're going to keep providing content throughout the dry part of this offseason. So keep it locked and loaded with us. Thank you to everyone who has taken the time to download the podcast, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, rate and review us. That makes a huge difference. Everyone who's taken the time to do that. We love seeing those ratings and reviews coming in, and I love to read them and just kind of keep up with the fans on Twitter as well. So keep it locked and loaded here. Big Blue Banther, and we'll talk to you soon. Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast.